0: And welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. And Zahava Stadler in northern New Jersey. Hey, guys. Hi, Zahava. This month on the podcast, we got a request from a listener to discuss the graphic novel Untersachen by Lila Korman. For our second segment, we're going to be discussing the recent triple wedding in New York of couples who couldn't or wouldn't get married in Israel under the rabbinate. So, um, for our first segment, we actually got an email a couple months ago from listener Jory Sladke, who suggested that we read and discuss this graphic novel, Unterzachen, by Lila Korman. Uh, Unterzachen was published in 2012 by Schocken Books, but we really liked this suggestion. We were really intrigued by the summary that Jory sent us, so we got it and we read it. Um, And it tells the story of twin sisters Esther and Fania Feinberg and their parents Isaac and Minna, who live on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the early 1900s. And a little bit of of it takes place in Russia before um, the parents immigrate to the United States. And it looks specifically at the reproductive and romantic and sexual choices that Esther and Fanya take um, Mm -hmm. and gives a pretty clear-eyed look at their parents' sex lives as well. So, I'm super curious. What did you ladies think of this book?
1: I am not in general a graphic novel reader Um, I've read I'm not sure I've ever read a graphic novel start to finish before this one so I was left feeling like I had missed something and I didn't know if it was me or the book um I did read a um a review tomorrow that you had shared um by Leitze Darst um, in Bookslot that criticized the book for leaving some of the plot threads loose um, or or not connecting some common themes or not returning to things. Um, And that made me feel a little better, like maybe it wasn't quite me. But I thought the book started a lot of really interesting conversations that it didn't quite know how to finish. Um, I'll say that those conversations are, and these are really, I think, worthy things to explore in fiction, um, things about... There's discussions of um, community morals that bump up against personal morals. There's discussions of hypocrisy on some of those moral questions, um, on secrecy around your choices and being consistent with your own values, and all of that is super vague. But all of that manifests in, um, as you said before, their relationship and sexual and reproductive choices in ways that I think are really interesting and they take very different directions. Um, one winds up in this very sort of um, both prudish sort of proto-feminist stance that, that uh, getting married amounts to sexual slavery for women the other winds up essentially as a sex worker for, for some time. Um, and these are very different paths. Um, but I, I wasn't quite sure that it was more
2: than the sum of its parts. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I, I, I think I enjoyed the um, the missing pieces of the story. It. I, I was definitely left with a lot of questions and very intrigued. Um, I think that. So, in addition to the two sisters, there's also the mother's sexuality and the way she uses her sexuality. Um, The mother was living in the States. We get a bunch of flashbacks. Sorry, we get a bunch of flashbacks to um, the parents of these twins, especially the dad and how he winds up in the United States. And it's basically that the mom is sleeping around and her parents need to marry her off. And she continues to sleep around as a wife and mother. Though she is also very controlling of her daughter's sexuality and does things like call them whores and sluts, um, and shames them for wanting to wear nice clothes or makeup. Um, and so I guess when I finished the book, I was thinking about these three models of sexual, of embracing or squashing or keeping secretive your sexuality, um, and really puzzling over in a fun way, I thought. Like, what is the book telling us, what's the book's message about how one should embrace her sexuality? Um, uh, yeah, I, I Tamari, do you have anything to throw into this mix?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what both of you said. I. I liked the things that it started to say, but I also was a little puzzled by the fact that it didn't seem to really settle on that much, that it seemed to kind of bring up a lot of things and then kind of wait, do some hand-waving and walk away in a way that was kind of unsatisfying as a reader. Although, maybe as realistic. <laughs> like, I think that as as listeners and readers of stories, we're primed to want a certain kind of narrative arc that just doesn't actually exist in most people's lives. And so there's something realistic about kind of unsatisfying endings of stories um, that I appreciate, but they are still unsatisfying. And I felt like the... And there's just a lot of surprising things. So one of the... In the very beginning of the book, the um, twins see a woman who seems to be um, dying because of a botched abortion. And one of them is sent to go go get Bronya, the lady doctor, who is kind of like the local abortion doctor who might be able to help in this situation. And ends up becoming her, her like protege. But Bronie, the lady doctor, in my mind, I was assuming she would be more of a like Margaret singer, like every woman should get all the birth control that she wants. and and that's not how Bronie actually turns out to be. Like she isn't kind of like a liberal crusader. She's actually like a prude who thinks that like, women shouldn't have sex because they're just going to get pregnant and it's just a man's way of subjugating women. And that was like, not where I saw this book going. (laughs) Um, so I was pretty surprised by that. And, and the book doesn't seem to have much to say to that. Like, it's not like the book is like, no, it's not. The book is just kind of reporting that. I don't know that I found a lot of parts of it kind of surprising like that i also found like just from an art perspective i had some trouble telling the girls apart um in the first half of the book yeah which is like makes sense because they're twins but also was kind of from my perspective like uh, frustrating um but i also the parts of it that i found frustrating stuck with me but i The idea of a book that really looks at the, like, reproductive lives of women at the turn of the century is, I think, just novel and fascinating. And thinking, really, about how much of their lives were totally determined by their when and how they got pregnant, um, and by whom, and under what circumstances, like, that was essentially just the driving point of their lives um, was really interesting to me and and I think especially from a Jewish perspective we when we think about like the Lower East Side of Manhattan when it was full of immigrants we tend to think of a kind of schmaltzy Jewish version of that and this was not that and I Appreciated that because this isn't like the side of the lower east side that I have really read that much about before
1: Right, you see the poverty, but it's not a romanticized poverty and it's not um, This culture that gave birth to all of this like food and literature And that's not that's not the romanticized version of the lower east side. We're seeing what's interesting though is This book really is about these women's sexual and reproductive lives and yet in the middle there's this big flashback to when their father was young in Russia Ukraine pale of settlement. I'm not sure it's exactly clear um, but in that area in the late 19th century and at first I wasn't sure why why we were here because we were spending too much time in his past for it to be merely like quick backstory so you understand where these girls came from. It was more than that Um, and I I developed a half-baked theory. Um so let me try this out on you guys. Um that what this book is actually exploring in all of its different manifestations are what happens when society when society makes you weak, when you are the weak and powerless one, whether that is um as a Jew in the Pale of Settlement who's Villages burned by the Cossacks or whether you are a uh, young woman being um, Being victimized and ultimately raped in a burlesque theater or whether you are a woman who doesn't have control over her reproductive life um, or whether you're a, a, Just a poor Jew in New York in the beginning of the 20th century that this is all an exploration of powerlessness and its different manifestations Um And I was even wondering whether the title, right, Untersachen means under things like underwear, which is a play a little bit on the sexuality and also uh, in addition to the the literal reference to the mother running a lingerie shop. But it also, to me, gets at like who's on top and who's underneath. Who's the under thing in this story? Who's the victim um, and who is perpetually cast as a victim and how they overcome that.
0: That doesn't sound half-baked at all. That sounds yeah. totally fully baked. Um, I'm bought in. I I love it. I think that's actually a very accurate reading of it.
2: Um, I'm also curious to talk a little bit about the form of graphic novels. Um, Zahava, like you, I haven't... I, I'm not a graphic novel person. I love the way words describe pictures and sort of don't need the picture. Um but I did, I did find myself thinking a lot about depictions of Jews, but it, because the depictions of like the big noses and the unibrows and the skinny hairy men, it's these are like the same images that you would see in Nazi propaganda, um, and I just was thinking a lot about the way Corman plays with the the image of the Jew. Um, in some ways making Esther, who becomes the burlesque dancer, prostitute, slash whatever, um, hideous. But all of her, she has this whole fan following, people who love her and call her divine and beautiful. And I was thinking, well, is, do I think she's hideous? It, does Corman is Corman playing with our own notion that like the Jewish woman is hideous, but actually we should take from this that she is beautiful and has all of these fans. It's Corman's own self-perception. I I don't know. I just, I I liked, I liked thinking about her artistic choices.
0: Yeah. I thought she was, she made really artistic choices. And I I think a lot, I, I feel like we've even talked about this a little bit before how like in older, in older things, um, movies and books and um, other pieces of art, it seems like more like there was an expectation that Jews looked a certain way and that you would be able to look at someone and know that they're Jewish. Um, and that that is definitely a thing in this book that they are just looked at and seen as Jews. And um, it's not that there's none of that now, but I think it's much it's much less of a thing. Um both because i think we're more sensitive to being politically correct and whatever but also just like jews don't have as homogenous as, as an appearance as i think they the jews who were living in the united states 120 years ago did. Um and so but but i do think that that, that makes for a kind of different artistic portrayal of of jews is it is very stereotypical, and I guess part of that is, is just to kind of be easier, be kind of a stereotypical shortcut, but I think part of it is also probably relatively realistic. I'm sad that neither of you guys like graphic novels, though. I'm not a person who reads like tons and tons of graphic novels, but I cannot recommend highly enough <laughs> the essential dikes to wa- watch out for. Have That's Alison Bechtel, right? Dykes to Watch Out for?
1: I haven't read it. I just know the name.
0: Yeah.
2: I've definitely read, I, and I've read excerpts, I think. I don't know, but. So, yeah, this is my own.
0: It contains, of course, the the Bechtel test, which is something that just kind of, even though it's like 30 years old, became trendy in the last five years. Um, but it is a comic strip that she wrote that went on for over 20 years and it is so good and the the essential dykes to watch out for is the collection at the end so it's not every single comic but it's like the uh, it is the, the greatest hits essentially and um i think there are some jewish characters it's not it's not explicitly Jewish. I don't think we have a good enough excuse to read it for this show. But, like, it is so good. It's so engrossing. Um, I... I gulped it up in one long weekend. And it's, like... I have compared it to, like, watching The Wire. Like, it is incredibly immersive. And I... It's a... just It's also just an especially amazing portrayal of, of women. So, um... And also, like, I mean, I actually have never read Mouse, but, like, that's, like, the most famous graphic novel is actually about the Holocaust. Maybe we should look at it sometime. I don't know. Um, there, there are good ones. I thought this was really interesting, but it wasn't... It probably wouldn't make my top five.
1: You know, I've... Um, n- it's not that I've been, been intentionally, been it, I was intentionally I avoiding the genre. It's just that it, it never held sort of obvious appeal for me, and I think, you know, as somebody who uh, contributes to like white papers and reports um, in my job you learn that some people are the readers some people will will skip the 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 charts and go straight to the discussion that describes it and some people will skip the discussion and go straight to the charts and visuals and you know that there's like words people and pictures people i think though that even as a words person what i can see from reading this especially from the beginning and the opening scene where um where they're they're on a very crowded street on the Lower East Side and she's sent to, like, go run and get Bronya the Lady Doctor when they see this woman um, bleeding on the street, that things that are in the background, that there's no way to, like, really describe in a in a text-only novel without derailing your main story, but just the details that you're able to put in the background of a visual representation, that there's a lot of value in that and that you get a lot of... Um, literal context um, that wouldn't necessarily come through in writing. And so I do see that from, from reading this book as um, one of the pluses of graphic novels. And, and that might be enough for me to take a little bit of a jump into the genre.
2: Explore more. I would do it again if you find us another one tomorrow.
0: All right. I'll see what I can do. There's one about birthright that's supposed to be good, but I have, I have to look into it. I'm not sure if I want to jump into that pool of subject matter but yeah. uh, there's some interesting ones all right well i mean uh, one thing that i will say about graphic novels is like they're yes way quicker to read than a novel novel so this is this is like maybe an hour total to read this whole book right um and for that reason like the fact that it is pretty short and that it's just different like everything about it is kind of like a different way of looking at something. Um, and even though I didn't like enjoy every second of it, I was glad I read it. And I actually mm-hmm. like brought it with me on a trip and my mother-in-law read it too. We had
1: yeah. If time. nothing else, it is very vivid, which is an interesting to say Same. about something that's drawn in black and white, but it is very vivid mm. in a way that I'm not sure you could quite pull off <laughs> in a traditional novel about these characters in this story.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's go on to our second segment then. Zahava, you want to open it up?
1: Sure. So for our second segment, we are talking about a wedding, a triple wedding that took place in New York in December. Three Israeli couples got married at Temple Emmanuel in New York. Um, one was a lesbian couple another was a Russian couple of which uh, one of the two people um, was not able to prove that her grandmother was Jewish and a third couple that could have gotten married in Israel under the Israeli rabbinate um, but had objections to allowing the rabbinate to control the terms of their marriage specifically for feminist reasons so this wedding was reported in both um, the Israeli media and in the New York Times um, and it was presented as a A really formal visible protest against the rabbinate which is the Israeli religious governmental institution that oversees a lot of aspects of religious life and personal status in Israel including conversions and weddings and burials in addition to things like kosher food Um, so we uh, we read this New York Times article and some other uh, we and some other journalism about marriage and the rabbinate um, as it's happening in Israel and as it's forced to happen not in Israel um, how did you guys react to this
2: story? My initial reaction was just reading the first three paragraphs of the New York Times article. I was like, ugh, who, the Israeli rabbinate, like, who needs them? I'm so, I just so don't care. Um, there was a line in the New York Times article that I just want to pull up because I really loved it. This was, um... Believe the gay couple once said, "I love you and I love tradition, and I refuse to choose between the two. Um, reading that forced me to rethink um, the position that these couples are in and and to care that there is another option for them, that it's not, that, that you don't have to get married under the rules that you can't, um, that some of these couples can't can't buy into um, or wouldn't be allowed to marry and just a totally non-religious wedding at all. Um, so my initial, like, I just don't care, the Israeli rabbinate can go screw itself was really tempered by thinking about the position that that is just so unfair and that I would be in for sure if I lived in Israel.
1: We should probably just say for context what exactly the problem is for listeners that are not familiar with this, that in Israel there is no such thing as civil marriage. Um, if you want to have a legally recognized marriage that takes place in Israel, um, you have to register with a religious authority. So you can have a Christian marriage or a Muslim marriage, or if you want to have a Jewish marriage, then it has to be a Jewish marriage that's registered with the Israeli rabbinate. And if it's going to be registered with the Israeli rabbinate, then it needs to be conducted in accordance with Orthodox Jewish practice. Um, And it needs to be between two people that the rabbinate recognizes as Jewish according to its standards. So that means um, if, um, that, that doesn't leave room for same-sex weddings, that doesn't leave room for um, marriages of people who the rabbinate won't recognize as Jewish, which could include everyone from uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union that can't prove their heritage to uh, Jews that were converted Or Jews from Ethiopia that were ospices. converted it through Orthodox um, So that cuts out...
0: But, like, the status of some conversions then gets thrown into some doubt. I mean, it, people's status as Jews um is at the core of it's not the only reason that you might not be able to get married by the rabbinate but it's one of the main reasons and the fact the rabbinate gets to determine essentially who counts as jewish in the state of israel
1: For for personal status issues, not for the purposes of citizenship, but for the purposes of of ritual ritual things like conversion and marriage. Um, And if you want to circumvent this, you can have a civil marriage outside Israel, which will be recognized by the Israeli government uh, in a way that doesn't have anything to do with the rabbinate, which is why there is a thriving industry of Israelis just hopping on a short flight to Cyprus and getting civilly married there, as one of the articles we read says... By the archdiocese under a big cross, um, and then coming back mm-hmm. to Israel so that the Jewish state can recognize their civil marriage.
2: I have a sidebar. The article mentioned Cyprus and Prague. Do you guys know why Prague in particular? Is it just maybe there's just probably a really just cheap like flight a to thing Prague. some people
0: started doing, and then oh, yeah. it became like a thing that a lot of people started doing.
2: Right, and now there are people who speak Hebrew who will get you married in Prague. So
1: yeah, I had not okay. heard about anyway, that
2: one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I am. So I have an interesting perspective on this because uh, I recently got married um, uh, according to American law. I had not. We had had a Jewish wedding, but um, had never been legally married. And it became prudent to do so recently. And so uh, because I live in Philadelphia, where um, you can get a self-uniting marriage license, I was able to get married via a high five. Um, <laughs> um, so because otherwise we would have had to like pay like a rabbi or a judge or someone to be a witness when we signed the paper. Um, but because of the Quakers, um, we were able to just high five and have some witnesses from our local buy nothing group um, sign the paper. So uh, it was, very egalitarian. Um, but it did make me think a lot about, like, the government's place in marriage here in the United States. Um, and it's not insignificant, um, even here. The What it means to be married is really, it's a legal distinction that matters for all kinds of legal benefits that you get. And, um, those, the fact that you can get the legal benefits in Israel, but you have to either go through a pretty big loophole by leaving the country, um, or you have to jump through some pretty significant hoops. And Zahava, I don't know if you mentioned, but I'm pretty sure if you want to get, have a Jewish wedding in Israel that is recognized by the rabbinate, it has to be performed by a rabbinate rabbi. Isn't
1: that correct? Um, so I am not sure what rabbinate rabbi means in this context, meaning there are there are many rabbis who are ordained by the Israeli rabbinate that are not personally employed by the Israeli rabbinate. Um, so I, I don't know what rabbinate rabbi means in this context. I think it's worth noting, though, that there is um, an organization called SOHAR, Um, which is working to create a rabbinate-recognized alternative experience for couples that don't want to directly go through the rabbinate. Um, So they now have, I believe, four um, rabbinate affiliated but rabbinate-recognized registration offices um, where you can have a potentially more congenial um, experience getting a marriage license. It's specifically tailored for secular couples who want to have a Jewish wedding in Israel. They want to be... You know, so they'll they'll go through the halachic, right? They'll they'll have the or- orthodox ceremony that the rabbinate requires, but perhaps with a more congenial officiant through sohar somebody that is trying to create an experience that they might be happier with, um, and that is legally recognized by the rabbinate. It's something that they're working very hard to navigate and has some pretty heavy-hitter rabbis associated with it. Um, probably the biggest name is Rev David Stav, who was a candidate but not chosen as uh A candidate for the position of chief rabbi relatively recently um but that is it's relatively new and it's still kind of fringe um the other thing that's going on in israel is that um there are a couple of rabbis um most notably rabbi chuck davidson and rabbi ellie fisher um who are in defiance of an explicit legal prohibition performing halachic marriages orthodox jewish marriages um for people outside the rabbinate not registering not registering them with the rabbinate um so that they can have the jewish ceremony that they are trying to construct with a different officiant not through the government simply getting civilly married in addition but having that wedding in israel what i thought was interesting actually about these three couples uh getting married in new york is that it they didn't have to do it this way right because The marriage that was ultimately recognized by the state of Israel was not the ceremony that happened in Temple Emmanuel, Right. They also had to get civilly married. Um, The The New York Times article mentions they went to City Hall as well. Um, Ultimately, they could have been married by the Reform rabbi of their choice in Israel um, or the Orthodox or conservative or other kind of officiant of their choice in Israel. And it would have been. Equally separate from the recognition of their marriage by the Israeli government, which ultimately was dependent on their civil marriage anyway. So when I realized that, I felt a little different, I don't know, about the ceremony in New York because it was like
0: it, right. it existed uh, to when make I was a point. thinking about it, I was thinking about, like, what—what what is the solution to this problem? Like, what do they actually want? What would actually solve this? Because um, I think, I mean, I... I have no lost love for the rabbinate, like, I could totally understand why they made that choice, and if I was in their shoes, I would totally do that. Like, what is the solution here that's going to make, not like, I, I, obviously, like, disilluding, dissolving the rabbinate is not going to be the rabbinate's choice, but, like, how do you make a system where, how do you have a Jewish state where, like, we need, We need to know if people are jewish because we care about people's jewish status but we're also going to acknowledge the fact that different constituencies in this country have different rules about the the in and out lines here um like i don't think that the rabbinage is doing a very good job of solving this problem i mean they're not trying to at all but i also I think it is like not an easy problem to solve and even though I totally sympathized with these people and felt like what a cool and amazing protest, like I don't I don't see anybody suggesting something that makes a huge amount of sense as an alternative.
2: Well, no, not as an alternative, but it the protest in part was protest of Bibi, of Netanyahu. They, guests at the wedding, signed a card to Netanyahu urging him to put pressure on the rabbinate, which I don't know like how um, how open those lines of communication are between the prime minister's office and the rabbinate and whether that would actually do anything. But it seems clear that the reform movement is committed to trying to put pressure in that way and this I, I couldn't quite figure out like the the politics of this wedding what organizations were involved who reached out to whom but um th- this is part of that yeah. approach I'm not Let's saying that these couples in need to have a angle.
0: solution I just I do think by how little the solution I think is clear sorry go ahead
1: well, I think that people take for granted that one of the things people want to see is the possibility of civil marriage in Israel. Meaning, if the way these these couples and many others exist as a legally married couple in Israel is that they leave the country to be civilly married and then they come in and are recognized, then from that perspective, it's a lateral move to institute civil marriage in Israel. There's no less clarity um under that system around people's Jewish status than there would be um in a system where all those same people have to leave the country to get married. It's it's simply about where they are in their whether they can have that experience in their homes uh and in their home communities. I mean so I this is a this is a story I don't think I've I've told on the podcast, but I had a conversation when I was in Israel for my gap year after high school. Um, so I had a conversation with one of my madrichot, one of the program counselors, um, who was a year older than I was. She was a second year bat shei-rut, so she was in her second year of national service, um, and she was doing her national service at my seminary as a counselor. Um, so we were pretty much peers, but she had been living in Israel pretty much her whole life. Um, and I asked her, like, what do you think of bringing civil marriage to Israel? Like, it seems like this is something a lot of people want. Why would you, what do you have at stake? You know, why would you oppose it? Um, And as an Orthodox person who had grown up in Tel Aviv, so not in a particularly cloistered Orthodox environment, she said to me, we really mix here we i come from a diverse city and i'm friends with everybody and people from different kinds of jewish backgrounds all interact and get along obviously not true in every corner of israel but this was her experience and she was saying if you brought in civil marriage and people could um people people's status wasn't clear we would have to stop mixing this is what she said she felt like You know her future children couldn't be friends with and potentially fall in love with people whose status wasn't clear that it would create these problems and the fact that it would create these problems would mean that the Orthodox community would close itself off. I don't know whether this is true, but I think it's an interesting countervailing priority. Um, That said, and this is total anecdata, so maybe I'm wrong. In the years since... I have watched my orthodox Israeli acquaintances become less and less sympathetic to the rabbinate, less and less invested in maintaining the rabbinate's current control. Um, And... There has come a point in some communities, which means uh, religi- religious nationalist, but is sort of the best analog in Israel for the American modern Orthodox community. In some of those communities, I think there has gotten a sense that when it comes to the interaction between a religion and state, that the modern Orthodox have more in common with the non-Orthodox than they do with the Haredi, um, and that the the policy alliances may be shifting. Again total anecdotal but I think it's interesting to watch and I'm not sure that she and I would have the same conversation today. yeah
0: I think I mean it reminds me a lot of conversations about same-sex marriage in the United States where I think there was a sense of like this is our institution and we don't want them to be a part of it which was a, a pretty popular argument at some point in the conversation about same-sex marriage in the United States and I think that changed because more people came out of the closet and pretty soon almost everybody knew somebody who was gay and or LGBT and people were just like, well, that person's great. If they want to get married, I I can't think of a good reason why not. And I think that that ultimately is what changed public opinion. And I think that similarly in Israel more and more people know someone who has had this problem of, like, wanting, you know, being orthodox couples where somebody can't prove that somebody's grandmother was Jewish, and so they can't get married in the state all of a sudden. And it just feels really alienating to people, and I think that turns people off. I mean, also, like, the rabbinate just doesn't have a great reputation within the country anyways for all kinds of other reasons um but it's it is a super different experience to have um than in in this country if you want to get married like you you have to go to an office but there's nobody there who's gonna say no to you i mean we had that experience and we did away with it in the last few years in the united states so now you want to marry another person, there's very few reasons that you're going to be told no uh, in this country. And in Israel, it's not only, I mean, it's just actually really complicated. You have to go through a whole process. Um, and I think, like, the idea that the Sohar was opening these, uh, these offices to help people go through the process of getting a marriage license just gives you a sense of how complex it is. Like, it is not, like... Going to an office, filling out a form, and getting a license—it's just—it doesn't resemble that at all. Um, and that, and it, and it, in fact, can be very um, combative. There can be a lot of like, "Can you, can you prove this?" In a way that I think, I, I mean, of course, feels terrible to people.
1: What's interesting to me, just by way of analogy, um, one of the other spheres that the rabbinate has uh power over is kosher supervision. But in contrast to these personal status issues where people's association with the rabbinate is the least forgiving most stringent standard possible, there's a lot of people who don't eat rabanut meat. Um right, like the rabanut the rabbinate's um, kosher supervision is considered sort of like the minimally acceptable orthodox kosher supervision. Um and may or may not pass muster with your stricter relatives, um, and that there is a sense in the arena of kosher, in the arena of kashrut, that the that the rabbinate is, is setting a, a functional universal standard that people can recognize, um, that allows proprietors to have kosher restaurants without jumping through every conceivable hoop, um, and that that is a situation that's functional and that people have added additional layers of supervision. Uh, There are independent country agencies that certify more stringently. And it's just interesting to think about that analogy. And it's just far more akin to the experience of being a Jew in the United States. Um, So for instance, I live in New Jersey. There is a New Jersey state government office that there is a New Jersey state kosher disclosure on the wall of kosher restaurants that says, we're not going to pass judgment on the quality of this, but here are the disclosures you have to, you have to uh, make in this context. And it says, you know, what is the, what is the identity of the person providing the kosher supervision? What does that supervision mean in terms of the following fill in the blank areas? Do you serve meat, dairy, fish, whatever? I don't need to go too far down the rabbit hole of this analogy, but it, it feels like the common standard is what we have to know about each other, and then you can choose. And I find myself wishing for a comparable, um, a comparable range and recognition of a range in the realm of well, um, in the I realm I just want to say though that
0: part of the reason lots of people don't um, don't trust the kosher supervision of the rabbinate is because the rabbinate is. There are famous cases of corruption um, around kashrut with the rabbinate. So, of, I mean, what happens is um, if, you are, if you are somebody who certifies uh, kosher food in Israel under the rabbinate, you certify so many businesses for how kosher they are, and you're, you're responsible for these businesses, and that creates a system where those businesses know... That they might be able to cut corners and just like pay you extra money so you won't report it um and that happens <laughs> and um and so there are situations where things that should not have passed muster did because people were getting paid for it um and i actually think that that is totally problem in the united states too separate issue um but i think it's much harder to do to kind of cut corners Um, in a way that people would object to, um, in in a marriage, um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe you could say, well, you could just pay somebody to get.
2: Maybe it's it's easy to cut corners in a. It's easy to cut corners in a marriage, but harder in a wedding. I mean, there are two people; there are just so fewer, um, fewer circumstances that you're dealing
0: with. The thing that needs to happen could happen in, like, 50 different ways, right? I mean, if the formula is A, B, C, D, E, that's the formula, and, like, either you did it or you didn't do it, but there's not a lot of, like, you know, how many hours did you wait before you cleaned the oven or whatever.
2: Well, I I, I am still curious about um, the analogy that you drew between kashrut and weddings, Sahava, and... I find myself wanting to understand or or trying to make a world view for the rabbinate what is the world view in which laxness around kashrut and strictness around weddings makes sense what are they try- what's the goal of of like the, the number of Jews in the Jewish state? Like, wh- why would you want to have fewer Jewish weddings in the Jewish state and more kosher restaurants?
1: I mean, I think the fear is that the ripple effects are more consequential, right? So if somebody wants to eat at a restaurant with a less stringent kosher supervision or at a restaurant with no kosher supervision, then that affects them, that person. But if you right. if you let this illegitimate in in you know your perspective marriage go forward, well then potentially the children of that marriage could be illegitimate. Maybe they shouldn't marry anyone, and they'll be able to. And the the ripple effects in future generations and what the rabbinate might see as the dilution of the legitimate Jewishness of the Jewish people is at stake. I I look. I'm a super diaspora Jew, I think, when it comes to this stuff. Like, there there are moments when I'm like, my God, am I American? And this is one of them. Like, we manage just fine, you know? And um, there are times when people do go through uh, stringency conversions before getting married. Um, Before marrying into a family that might not recognize them as they are, you know and there are times when families have to grapple with how they're going to accept somebody who uh, who might not follow all the same procedures that they would like to enter the Jewish people or there are times when people look askance at each other's denominations and all of that is Frustrating, but I don't think that the answer to those thorny Fraud interpersonal dilemmas Is to have the most Stringent authority possible Ascend bearded from On high and tell you you're wrong
0: Yeah um, I have a sidebar Which is that probably about a year Ago I was putting my nephew who was at the time Three to bed and um, Before bed He said he was telling me About his nighttime routine and he said At night we say shma. And in the morning, we sing God Bless America, which, which is an amazing routine, which I don't think in fact was true, but he was in a stage of really liking the song God Bless America. So perhaps he did in fact sing it every day. Um, but I I do, I'm with you. The reason I brought that up is because I, I do kind of think of myself as a like Shema and God Bless America, um, Jew, um, similar to Zahaba, um. But I, I absolutely think that the, the issue of uh, how who is Jewish um, and whether or not that's as clear as people want is is what's at the core here. And in fact, I was speaking to somebody um, off the record at uh, an event last year from a um, Orthodox institution and I said, "What do you think is the biggest problem in the Jewish community today?" And he said, without, I mean, without a second's delay, he said, uh, it's no longer clear, you can no longer be certain who's Jewish and who's not Jewish. And that's the biggest problem that we have. And I was just like, whoa, that's like not on my top 20. Um, I mean, I think it's like not on my list at all. Um, So it was very surprising that it was his number one. Um, But I think, you know, if you... If that's important to you then that is really important and figuring out who is Jewish you know I mean ultimately that it's really it's about intermarriage and it's about Jewish children and if you can't be sure that someone is Jewish then you can't be sure that their children are Jewish and that that's you know what he cares about most the thing that's like so bizarre to me about that question is that like documentation is just of this kind of thing is so recent of a phenomenon um and and frankly like why should you necessarily trust any documentation that's 150 years old any more than anything else you know i mean how how good are you at detecting a fraud in that situation um
1: not to mention that Jews, as a people who have been subject to, over our history, many uh, pogroms and expulsions and and indignities of major types, uh, we're not a well-documented people,
0: <laughs> like, as a right, general rule. Yeah. We didn't and, bring our paperwork with us all the time. And we want to be, yeah. suddenly, that group that's like, show me your papers? I mean, I... There's something about that that is just so distasteful to me Um, And I understand the issue at the core like I get that It is important. I understand why it is important in some ways, but I just think like it. I don't think in, in any situation. How could you ever know I mean? Once you get back a couple hundred years You could be anything there's There's a great article about uh, somebody who did 23andMe testing and discovered that um, their father was not at all related to his family, and they just could not figure it out. And this was like an Irish Catholic family who suddenly discovered that they had like that this their father was 50 was 100 percent Jewish, and they were like, "How's that possible?" And I mean, it's a long story. I'll put the link in the show notes. But the answer is like babies got switched at the hospital by accident in, like, the turn of the century, and, like, this Catholic family got sent home with this Jewish kid, and a Jewish family got sent home with a Catholic kid, and they figured it out genetically, like, a 100 years later, um, when both of those kids were dead. Um, But, you know, (laughs) so that kid was raised Catholic. Was he not really Catholic? Like, he was Catholic literally till the day he died. Um, So, I, I mean, I just feel like You just don't know about stuff like this, and it's not, the degree to which you have to pursue these things is not, um, doesn't doesn't make that much sense. And I mean, and that does not even answer the question of same-sex couples, which I think is a really important question that it's not fair to just leave them out of this equation. Like, I think they have every right to be married as well. Right. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I wish it were as simple as not that the like struggle for gay marriage was simple, but if we all knew somebody who um struggled over his or proving his or her Jewish identity that maybe we would all gain some compassion and could find a way to come up with another option for um for marriages in Israel. But I I don't know. I mean, there's a reason that that's another part of the work that SOHAR is involved in, that they understand that this is a struggle. They're also helping um, Jews from the former Soviet Union gather the documents necessary. They have like some forensic group that helps people get their papers together to prove that they're Jewish. There are so many people stuck, not able to Fully participate in rituals. So, I
1: don't know. One thing I want to recommend I mentioned earlier the um, Rabbi Chuck Davidson, who is one of the few rabbis who um, marries people in defiance of the law that you should not perform a uh, Jewish marriage ceremony in Israel um, that is not registered with the Chief Rabbinate. Um, and he wrote a piece in the Jewish Review of Books. Um, in December 2016, um, it's called Why I Defy the Israeli Chief Rabbinate. Um, I do recommend it, um, but I, there's a there's a passage in it that I think is really um, interesting. So he's kind of reflecting on the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, Rev David Stav, who is one of the leading rabbis of Tsar, was a candidate for the chief rabbinate and was not elected to the disappointment of a lot of people who are hoping to see reform. Um, and... Um, Oh, I'm, I am misspoke. This article is not by Chuck Davidson. It's by Rabbi Ellie Fisher, who's the other rabbi uh, I referenced earlier, who, who marries people in defiance of this law. Um, so um, Rabbi Fisher says, the most common refrain among critics of the Rabbanut is that it is overly stringent, increasingly extremist and dominated by Haredim, who have no religious stake in the integrity of the institution or indeed of the Zionist project. This is a radical misunderstanding of the problem, which is structural—a matter of political philosophy, not personnel. The rabbanut uses state power to impose uniformity, which in turn forces religious groups to compete for control of the state religious apparatus. So his point was, it doesn't matter who we elect; we're electing them to the head of the wrong thing for Judaism, um, right? And when I said earlier that the the sort of the the solution that most people lean on is one of civil marriage that is a a, like I said a lateral move in terms of knowing who and is not who is and is not Jewish by whatever standard but at the same time it doesn't answer the the question of the people who don't want to choose between loving you and loving tradition, um, right? It doesn't answer the question of if you want your the the Jewish marriage ceremony that you envision, or you or that respects a certain kind of dignity or or a certain kind of sensibility, is just not available to you in that way. Um, and the notion that the way we handle disagreements about Judaism is to impose uniformity, just feels very not consonant with the Judaism that I live. Right? There is nothing more characteristic of judaism than perpetual debate Um, and the imposition of uniformity feels like it it just isn't in our dna it doesn't it doesn't actually feel right Um, so as as an orthodox person of this institution that purports to represent and protect my interests it just it just doesn't feel like my judaism all
0: right well i think we are all on similar pages here. Um, Shall we go on to our endorsements? Okay. Mimi, what do you have for us?
2: Part of my Jewish DNA has been, um, or maybe not part of my Jewish DNA, but my Jewish journey has been learning the songs that will gain me Entree into certain Jewish communities. I, as all of you know, I grew up in the Reform movement. I knew all of the Reform songs, and when I came to college, I was determined. I wanted to learn the full Birkat Hamazon, which I had never had to do, and I wanted to learn Karlbach tunes um, for, especially for Kabbalat Shabbat. And Karlbach has always so, so Shlomo Karlbach was a rabbi and Jewish composer. Um, he has a lot of famous nigunim and melodies, and Learning those songs made me feel confident in Jewish spaces. And this has been, I've been thinking a lot about the role of Karl Bach in my life because I would say maybe two years ago, I learned that there was this other part of Karl Bach, this controversy about how he, um, how he treated women, how he was accused of sexual impropriety and molestation um, with particularly underage or very young um, young women. And I really couldn't internalize that for a long time because I needed those tunes in such a way. Um, And my recommendation connected to all of this is um, are two articles rather. One is from Lilith Magazine. Um, it reads like an op-ed. It's from their blog. Uh, You've come a long way, sister. Twenty years after Carlbach allegations, his daughter hears me too. Um, it breaks down a lot of the um, a lot of the allegations against Karlbach, the history of the allegations, well, and how different communities responded. How he himself responded. Sorry, go uh, ahead. So
0: the reason that they have this article about it is because they... Um, Can
2: look back right. on it. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that clarification. Um, I, ha- I had never done any research into what was behind the allegations, so it was very helpful to have this full picture of it and an exploration of the history and talking to these women again. Um, and the second piece I want to recommend is from Neshama Karlbach, his, Shlomo Karlbach's daughter. Um, I found it in Times of Israel. I think that might be where it was originally posted. Um, and it's called My Sisters, I Hear You. And it's her response to the allegations, her journey, her way she now understands her father, and a little bit her defense of her father and, and herself. Um, I now feel really comfortable and ready to say that I don't need to sing a Carl Bachtignan again. And when I'm in spaces where they sing it, I do. I can't not think about this. I can't avoid it anymore. Um, and I, I, yeah, I I just am reflecting right now on. How far I've come, how, how much those songs meant to me, and how ready I am now to find new songs. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah.
1: Both of those
0: pieces yeah. are really great powerful. pieces. Cool. Yeah. Sahava, so what do you have?
1: So I was going to uh, make a quick recommendation, um, but then our discussion uh, just now about Marriage and the Robinate, uh brought up a couple more things for me, so I'll try and do them quickly. The first thing that I was going to recommend is less an endorsement and more me offering a resource if people want it, which is that I recently decided to go through my file of handwritten divrei Torah that I have given in different settings over the years that I've just sort of like saved the loose leaf paper that I wrote it on. And it's in a folder all in a big jumble. And I was like, I really need to type this stuff up and save it. Um, and so I created a template for myself on Sefaria which is the uh, Sefaria.org the Jewish educator website um, that has really good resources for creating your own source sheets. I created a blank sheet with just Um, A heading for each Parsha, each weekly Torah portion, and also a heading for each uh, Jewish holiday. Um, And underneath each heading, there's just a text box that says placeholder in it, so that when you've got a Dvar Torah on that thing, you can just slot it in. Um, To me, it's really useful, so I have a copy for myself, but I made a publicly available blank template, just called Weekly Torah Template. So if you search for my name, Zahava Stadler, on Safaria, it'll pop up and you can make your own copy and slot in your own Torah if that's useful to you. Um, so that is my that offer is a very generous an and awesome um, my sec- I love it. <laughs> um, my second uh, thing is an endorsement, and I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, so Tamar was talking about the... Uh, sort of national stakes of the question of who is jewish and who is not and how we know um, and there is a book a book that i did a little bit of editing for full disclosure called pledges of jewish allegiance conversion law and policy making in 19th and 20th century orthodox responsa um, the book is by rabbi david ellenson of hebrew union college and rabbi dr daniel gordas um, of shalem college now Um, So it is a reformed rabbi and a conservative rabbi talking about orthodox conversion responsa um, and it is a really fascinating look at the history of some of, of the conversion debates and what kind of policy people thought they were making. Um, as rabbis answered questions about you know intermarriage and converting children converting spouses converting people in the context of the State of Israel uh, Soviet Jews things of that nature um, so I recommend that if this is an issue that you're interested in, The writing's a little bit dry because it is responsum, responsum, responsum. Uh, It's a lot of case law, but if this is something you're interested in, I do recommend it. Um, You can get it at all the usual book buying places, pledges of Jewish allegiance. Um, And the third thing that I want to recommend is a Twitter thread um, from Laura Moser. So Laura Moser. Um she used to write about education for Slate Magazine in their school blog. Um she is now a candidate for Congress in the 7th district of yes, Texas. Yes, I saw this thread. And it's amazing. Yeah. So, and it just really it really hit home for me. Um and the reason I thought of it during our conversation is is um we were talking a little bit about the fact that this history of expulsions and persecutions mean that Jews are not a well-documented people. Um, and this thread begins, um, with a picture of Laura wearing a small necklace and it says, see the necklace I'm wearing, not that big or impressive, right? That's because it needed to be small enough to be smuggled past Nazi border guards. She goes on to talk about how this necklace belonged to her aunt Lietze when she left Germany in 1933. Um, and what the, uh, Legacy of being part of a Holocaust survivor refugee family me- meant to her growing up, and what it means as part of her motivation for running for Congress and addressing some of the things that she doesn't like about the direction that our country is headed in right now. Um, so I found it very powerful, um, and we will share awesome. a I link in show notes. Yet. That
0: sounds really good. Okay, so I have uh, a few things to recommend. So the first is that the best book that I've read in a long time is a book that I finished earlier this week. It's called The Power by Naomi Alderman. Um, the book itself doesn't have a ton of Jewish content or themes in it, but it's not, not there. Um, it's just, it's incredible. It's an incredible feminist book um, that I just, I cannot impress upon you enough that you should go get this book and read it. It's amazing. But Naomi Alderman um, is an amazing Jewish writer who um, whose first book is called Disobedience um, and is about a woman who grew up really um, from and left the from world, partially because she was a lesbian. Um, and um, that book has been made into a movie, which I totally want us to see and talk about later this year when it comes out. Um, but in the meantime, Everybody go read books by Naomi Alderman. <clears throat> um, I also want to recommend um, somewhat adjacent to Zahava's um, Safaria template. Um, whenever I have to, um, when, whenever I like need some quick Torah and I don't kind of know what direction I want to look, I start by going to the Bar Ilan Parshat Hashavua. Um, they have like a database of of DeVray Torah, um, written by faculty members of this university in Israel. Um, and they are outstanding. They kind of all cover all kinds of topics. Some of them are more spiritual, some of them are more um, historical, just they can go in all kinds of um, interesting places. And they're short, like they're usually um, under 800 words. So it's a little a little nugget, but it's really good, especially if you are feeling like, you can't really figure out a good place to start in terms of thinking about something from a Parsha. Um, that's my, that's my place to start. So I really recommend that, that database of the Torah. And the last thing that I want to recommend, um, is something that I actually heard about from, um, from our, uh, our, our friend and uh, producer, um, Doug Tzvi Kalman, um, he mentioned on his Facebook an interview with Tova Mervis on the Mormon Stories podcast. (laughs) I have never listened to the Mormon Stories podcast before, but I listened to this um, series of interviews that they it was one long interview that they kind of divided up into three pieces um, with Tova Mervis, who wrote a uh, book um, recently about leaving um, Orthodoxy, and the interview was so fascinating, and it's fascinating because she talks a lot about um, how she grew up and what, her, what she believed growing up and what her parents, what she thought her parents believed growing up um, and how her beliefs changed over time. And it just, it, it's really interesting and it made me think a lot about how I really knew like what was the practice in our house but I didn't know that much about what my parents really believed. Um, And, you know, my mother's dead, so I'll I'll never actually know that about her. And I've asked my dad some questions, but his answers have always surprised me when I've asked him these questions. Um, And I think the, like, especially in Judaism, what we do and what we believe are not always um, aligned and... We don't talk about it, partially, I think, because like it's a little embarrassing to admit that they're not aligned, um, but it's just a fascinating conversation, and I mean, I'm not sure that I'm going to become a regular listener to the Mormon Stories podcast, but it was uh, definitely a very interesting perspective and made me think that it's probably worth my time to listen to more of them. So, anyways, those are, are all my endorsements for, for this month. It, it's yeah, worth that sounds really definitely cool. worth looking up okay uh thank you for listening if you have a minute please leave a review for us on apple podcasts or let us know what you'd like to discuss on a future if episode thank you so much to jory for um recommending Unterzachen. we absolutely do take recommendations when people want us to talk about something so don't be bashful You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You should search for Jewish Public Media to find it, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a great way to support our show and ensure that we're able to bring you new episodes. Thank you so much. See you next month. Bye, Mimi. Bye. Bye, Zahava. Bye, guys.